We're in this series called The Way, and it is centered around this march from Lent, as we go through Lent, all the way to Easter. Will French kicked it off last week, and he focused in on a couple of really important things. And if you weren't here or you didn't listen, you really should hop on and listen, especially if you're somebody who has a tendency to kind of see your life as, as a divided life. You know, there's, there's my church thing, there's my church world or church friends or my volunteering at church, and then there's my work stuff and my career. And if you, if you have any tendency to see your life as compartmentalized or segmented, you ought to listen to Will. Will's a veterinarian. He and Becky and Zane are part of our church, and he will reframe your calling to whatever it is you're doing. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Building, taking down. Making widgets, selling this, selling that. It doesn't matter. He will reframe it in terms of your walk with Christ. And this is why it's important, because Jesus combines serving and following and as we push on into the next chapter of John and you ought to read along in the passion section of John it's really incredible almost half of John is dedicated to the last week of Jesus's life and most of the stuff in the last half of John is not in the other gospels at all and so it's really worth your time just to to listen to Will last week and maybe read along with us pay attention and dig in but as Jesus spend some time with his disciples. You'll see all kinds of red letters, if that's the kind of Bible you read. A lot of Jesus' words that are not in the other Gospels as well. But Jesus is going to give texture to what it means to follow and serve. And he's going to give it right away. He's going to, in John 13, get very specific about me and you, what we do, how we do it, and when we're engaged with people, what that, what that should look like. So John 13 kicks off like this. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then he says this, and this is uh, typical of John. He'll say these things that seem a little bit cryptic, but if you go slow and just kind of listen carefully and thoughtfully, when he wrote the gospel, he was an old man. And he was able to look back and reflect on what mattered most. And the older I get, the more I appreciate conversations that I have with people that are 10, 20, 30 years older than me, and they're getting harder to find, they're 30 years older than me, but the wisdom and the purview, the, the, the view that they have of life from where they stand or sit is uh, comprehensive, and they see things that I don't see, and this is where John is, so this, this is what he says about this, this time with, with Jesus. Having loved his own, the disciples will call them, or Jesus' closest compadres having loved his own who were in the world he now loved them what what's it say to the end to the end and this is a an evening of Jesus's life in the last few days of Jesus's life that we commonly know as the last supper um, they're in an upper room the room had been gathered for them secured and borrowed and they're in Jerusalem for the Passover festival and the feast and Jesus is spending time with the people that are closest to him. And everything we read in John from here on out, John 13, really all the way to crucifixion. I mean, there's some other players and other characters in the story. But for the most part, Jesus is interacting with the people that he is closest to. And he's going to talk to them about life to come and what's expected and how it all works. This is their holy huddle, if you will. And he's going to hand off some big deals to them. They're going to plant, they're going to start the church. They're going to, you know, launch this movement of the way, followers of Jesus. 
and it's going to change the course of human history. And Jesus is just with them. And we call them disciples or apostles after the fact. That's what we call them. But Jesus had a different name for them. He says, and this will be in just a, a couple chapters. We'll get there. But he says this, I have called you what? Jesus had lots of friends. But this should not be lost on us that Jesus had a group of people that he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm calling you friends. The 12 of you that are with me, they're closest to me. Probably there were about three that were a little closer than the others. And John would tell you that he was Jesus' best friend. In fact, he says in the gospel of John, the, he doesn't use his name. He says, it's the, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And I don't know if his tongue is in his cheek or if he's poking at some of the other guys. And like I said, John's an old man. A lot of them had passed already. And so maybe this is final little, you know, hoorah or whatever. But these were the ones that were closest to Jesus. So before we get into anything else in this chapter, I, I want to just hang here just a moment and it should be something that we pay attention to, that Jesus, the Messiah, the rabbi, that he had friends. I don't know what the pandemic has been like for you. And it feels like we're rounding. I mean, we hate to even jinx it, but it feels like things are changing and, and getting much better. One of our folks in the church, they work at the hospital here in town. And, and she said today that they haven't had a COVID case in two weeks, not one case. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, we clap for that. Absolutely. We did in first service, and there were only three of us here. We clapped. And so, and so I, I don't know what the pandemic has been like for you, but, but I, I know that one of the gifts of the pandemic, I mean, there are many, there are many unanticipated, unexpected, maybe even unwanted gifts. But one of the gifts has been that we take stock of what's going on around us, and we pay attention to what we have and what we do, our values, our priorities. Maybe we've, you know, done a bit of an inventory and said, well, you know, if if we're going to go through this painful, difficult time, we ought to at least use it to sort out what matters and what doesn't matter. We ought to at least decide what are our values and our priorities. Do they need to be changed or shifted a bit? And I bet you've done that. I bet you have. And, and as you have done that, every survey that has been done in the pandemic, post-pandemic and the last couple of years have indicated this thing about our lives. Our friendships have taken a hit a significant hit. Some of us have lost relationships because of difficulties or friction or political stuff. Some of us have moved away because the pandemic gave us a chance to kind of draw back from the people that were close to. And then we thought, I don't know, let's put the house on the market, see what happens. And then we find ourselves in San Antonio, you know, or whatever. It could be because we had to engage in this thing that up until two years ago, we'd never heard of social, what we call it, social what? distancing right and if you're an introvert like me I was like sweet this is great but after a while you go I'm a little lonely and I'd like to be around some people that know me and that I know them and so all of these things hopefully factored into this place where we are evaluating and we're clinging to things that are important to us and letting go of some things that don't matter some of us let go of relationships that we need and some of us were let go in relationships that we need. And my hope is that you have done the very same thing with faith in terms of evaluating and prioritizing with faith and even your relationship with the church that you decide this is what matters, this is what stays, this is what goes, this is what I want and I'm going to cling to it and this doesn't matter anymore to me. 
And so there are a couple thoughts about Jesus having friends and what we've been through over the last couple of years I think are, are worth spending all the time just thinking about this morning. And the, one of the first things is this. I, I know that if you are considering your life and your friendships and the lack of friendships that many of us have, and if it's true that the pandemic caused friendships to take a hit, and this is shown in, like I said, almost every survey, even for women who are notoriously relational, this is true, but especially for men who maybe find themselves lacking in the relational efforts because, you know, we're fixers, we get it done, we got stuff to take care of, and so relationships fall way down the list for us men. My hope is that you have decided that you want to invest some time and energy in your own friendships and in your own relationships. It's one of the one of the things that matters most about the church. Not that you're here for church. This is not where the magic happens. It's good stuff and worship and learning and all of that. That's very, very important. But what is more important and where the good stuff happens is when you find yourselves rubbing shoulders in proximity to people that are not your coworkers, not your family, not, not the people that you get, just get to choose. I mean, you look around the room, some of these people you wouldn't choose to hang out with at all, but yet here you are in the same room. And the beauty of that and the necessary nature of that is exactly what we hope that you've decided. This is worth it to me. This is worth the effort to me Uh, to jump into a men's group or invite somebody out to lunch or go to coffee and get to know them. Just dig in a little bit because you and I, we need to be in proximity with people who are also following Jesus and trying to figure out how faith works. I don't know about you, but I I can be up in my head occasionally quite a bit and maybe not sure I have the right thing sorted out. I need you. I need each of you in my life to help me sort those things out, make sense of it all. And I hope that that's a value that you've seen and there's some value in hearing somebody sit next to you and confess these truths and you digging into relationships. That's one of the things that I think is important. There's a book that has caught my attention over the last few weeks that has shaped some of these thoughts. Interestingly enough, this book, it's called The Big Sort, and the, uh, the subtitle is Why the Clustering of Like-Minded America is Tearing Us Apart. Does that resonate with anybody? Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible book. Now, when you see the title, and even when you begin to read portions of it, you think this had to be written in the last four years. It wasn't. It was written in 2008, almost 15 years ago. And the author, Bill Bishop, he's a sociologist. He tracks trends. If, if, you, if you like Malcolm Gladwell or people like that that take this you know, incredible data and distill it into some truths and then tell some stories around it, it's a great read. It's fascinating. And it'll help make sense of what's happening in our country right now because Bishop spends some time explaining how and why there has been a great migration really over the last few decades of our country. And that migration has put us in very isolated pockets where we're around folks that think like we think. And it's happened for a lot of reasons. It's not because we just want to be with people that agree with us. All kinds of economic factors, social factors, political factors, you name it. Lots of, it's a thick book. Uh, but it's worth the read. Let me give you a little bit of synopsis. And this is why this matters. Here's what he says. Just take your time. Some, some big thoughts here. and It's worth some some pondering like-minded homogeneous groups squelch dissent 
and they grow more extreme in their thinking and they ignore evidence that their positions are wrong. Now, how many of you just had somebody come to mind and it wasn't you? (laughs) Okay, just take a beat and then forget about that person came to mind, deal with that later, but let's just stand in front of the mirror for a moment. I know it's hard, uncomfortable, but he's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about me. He's talking about me. And then he goes on to say this. If that wasn't enough, here's what he says. As a result, we now live in a giant feedback loop. It's a great analogy. Hearing our own thoughts about what's right and wrong bounce back to us by the television shows we watch, the newspapers and books we read, the blogs we visit online, the sermons we hear, and the neighborhoods we live in. Now, he takes, I don't know, 400 some pages to accomplish his his thesis and argument. And it's pretty compelling and it's backed up by data, you know, that is extensive. But if you think about the people that you know, and if I think about the people I know, I see this great migration happening in our country that, that we do find ourselves, whether it's people at work or our neighbors or our friends, we find ourselves increasingly isolated from other people that think differently than us. Now, that's just a sociological phenomena. In other words, there's a good portion of the book that has no valuation judgment on what's really going on there. But then he does get to it because you saw it in the you saw it in the subtitle. And this is not a Christian book by any stretch of the means, although he does have a whole section on what's happened to the church through this process, again, 2008. But he says that the, the clustering of America is tearing us apart. And I find it incredibly interesting that somebody who has a, just a sociological view of culture and life and relationships that he sees a problem with or incredible, detrimental, harmful effects of us being around people that think like we think or agree with us, it's a problem. Look, when Jesus says, here's the, how it's connected to John 13. When Jesus says, I've called you friends, most of us think that he was in the room with his, his buddies who all think alike and act alike and believe all the same things. I mean, you know, they were the disciples. They were with him for, for three years. Of course, they were of like mind and unity and all that sort of thing. Well, I mean, once Judas got kicked out, right? Once he left the room, surely the 11 were good. Once we got rid of that, that dude. And we could not be further from the truth if we think that. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but you probably do. If you've read the gospels, you see glimpses of it. But have you thought about who the disciples were and and where they came from and what they held on to in terms of ideologies. It's absolutely unbelievable to consider that there were these 12 guys and many others, but these 12 that we, we could name as the disciples that followed Jesus and stuck with it for three years. Here's just a little snapshot. You could dig into it further. I mean, uh, one of the first guys that comes to mind is, is a guy named Nathaniel. We, also, we know him as Bartholomew. Nathaniel was probably the only disciple that had royal blood in him. He had some 
probably, you know, this is what we, we surmise. Some of it's scriptural that we understand, but some of it's historical. He, he was a scholar. He was very learned. He probably had an incredible Jewish pedigree. He deeply understood the law, probably had the first five books of our Old Testament memorized uh, word for Hebrew word. He was a very unique man, and he was very committed. In fact, when Jesus calls him to be a disciple, he said, here is an Israelite in whom I can see no impurity. That's what Jesus said about Nathaniel. And he's hanging out with James. You remember James? You know James, right? What was his brother's name? John, that's right. And they were called the sons of uneducated, barbarian, just a fisherman. No against, nothing against fishermen. But James was not an educated man. He didn't under, he had no pedigree. He had no lineage that he could put on his resume. And he's hanging out with Nathaniel, who incredibly educated, high-minded, lofty, thoughtful, they couldn't have been more different. And yet they were hanging with Jesus. Probably the most stark contrast is Simon and, and Matthew. We don't know a ton about Simon, but we do know that he had a little nickname or a little moniker after his name. They called him Simon the, anybody know? First service knew. That's right, the zealot. Simon the zealot. Now, you don't have to know much about Simon but once you understand his name, then you know that Simon was committed and he was passionate and he was aggressive and he did not question his own commitment to the church. In fact, we've heard nationalism being batted around a lot in our culture today. And uh, if anybody was a nationalist, it was Simon the Zealot. He believed that Israel was the answer to the world's problems and that God would restore Israel as a nation and that Rome would be defeated and that when the Messiah comes, he would reign as a literal physical king and that he would be one of the ones in the you know, throne room. This is what Simon believed. In fact, him and Judas were of like mind about this idea. This is Simon the Zealot and he's hanging with a guy named Matthew who by profession was a sellout when it came to Jewish life, a tax collector. And the only reason somebody would want to switch sides and be a tax collector, well, really, it would be greed. In fact, it would be broadly assumed that anyone who worked as a tax collector, especially a Jewish tax collector, who would risk being ostracized by his friends and family, must be on the take when it comes to the Roman government. And this is what they did. Rome paid them very little and said, you know, we're going to pay you this. They're like the servers of the first century. You know, we're going to pay you this little bit and the tips are yours, that was Matthew's life. And so he had the governmental authority to charge whatever he wanted and take it for his own. And he did, over and over and over again. So how does a committed nationalist find himself in the same room with a turncoat sellout like Matthew, and yet they're, they're, they're together, they're together, following Jesus for three years. One of the most striking contrasts is in John chapter 13. In this chapter, you should read along with us as we go through just a chapter a week. In this chapter 13, this, this verse is from 15, but in chapter 13, Judas and Peter both come up in the discussion with Jesus. In fact, Jesus is going to talk about the nature of betrayal and in fact, Jesus is even going to tell the disciples why he would tell them in advance that a betrayal is going to occur. You ought to read it. It's not what you think. 
It's incredibly insightful and it helps us understand if you have ever felt like you've let God down or you're not good enough, your sin's too big for him, you should read about Judas and Peter in John 13. But I can't think of two people that are more different historically and spiritually than Judas and Peter. I mean, Judas is the betrayer and he falls out of the story very soon near the end of the Gospels. Peter, on the other hand, he's the pinnacle of pinnacles. He's, he's going to preach on Pentecost and launch this movement called the way that would be the church that transforms the world and changes history. Uh, Peter stands head and shoulders above most people, spiritually speaking, and certainly importance in the biblical story. And Jesus paints Judas and Peter with the same brush. Betrayers both. And this is just a glimpse. I mean, we could dig further on the rest of them, but this helps you understand that Jesus must have wanted us to have some understanding, some comprehension that you need to be someplace with people who think differently than you think. Because Jesus surely could have picked people that agreed on everything, but he didn't. He found people that were diametrically opposed and didn't just say, you know, you should hang out. You know, you should do life together. You should spend as much time as possible. There probably wasn't a day in those three years that these six and the rest of the six and Jesus as well didn't have FaceTime and interaction and discussion and watch all of Jesus's ministry develop over time. And they had to deal with their differences and decide if they were going to allow love to win the day or if they would begin to paint each other as the villain. And this is where we find ourselves. This is why Bishop's book is so timely even for today. I believe God wants us around people that think differently than we think. One of the reasons is because it cannot be even remotely within the realm of possibility that I'm right about everything that I think or believe. And if I'm going to find a path of understanding, it's going to come from somebody else, not me. Not my own research, my own digging. I, I'm just confirming most of the time what I already think when I read, when I study. But what I need to do is be knee-to-knee, face-to-face, shoulder-to-shoulder, brain-to-brain with somebody who thinks differently than I think and hear their rationale, hear their perspective, understand the why behind their ideology. And then I become more the person that God wants me to be. And this is what I love about our church. It's, it's who we are. Odds are you're sitting pretty close to somebody that thinks differently than you do about a lot of things. You may not know it yet, and maybe you're digging into some relationships, or maybe you're not sure about how to pursue those things. But when we look at the disciples as a model, that's exactly what God wants from me and from you. I was having a chat with one of the folks in our church just a couple weeks ago about this very thing and the, the divided nature of culture and even in churches. And um, he began to share his perspective on it. And what he said was so thoughtful and helpful. I asked him to um, give me those thoughts again and a quote that I could share with you today. This is, this is what Mark Havercate shared just a couple weeks ago. His way says, and he's here, so don't embarrass him, all right? Some of my very best friends are liberal. We don't agree on any political topic, but our long friendship is above all that, and that won't change. 
It's good to hear the other side sometimes, listen to a passionate argument directly opposed to what I think. And the conversation doesn't change my mind, but it helps me understand the full range of thought on the topic. This is exactly what makes the body of Christ the full spectrum of the body of Christ. Look, when, when Jesus says, look, I, I'm going to love these to the end, what he's saying is, the people that you journey with matter. And so you ought to ask this question. How are your friendships? How are they? Do you feel a bit isolated? Somebody left first service and they said, a gentleman said, you know what happened to my friendships? You know, as, as, as the pandemic ensued, it felt like the rapture happened. That's what he said. They all just disappeared. Occasionally, Donna and I think the rapture has happened. And we look around, you know, we think, what, what's going on? And so I call Deb Statter and I say, hey, is Matt home? And she says, yep. And I say, good. The rapture has not happened. <laughs> That's how I know the rapture has not happened if God hasn't taken Matt Statter. So the rest of y'all, jury's out. But I know where Matt Statter's going. So that's what he said. It feels like with my friends, the rapture has happened. Oh, I just got left. I just got left. How are your friendships? How are you sowing into those friendships? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with men and with women as they try to sort out how to make adult friendships. We were taught to do it in kindergarten and first grade. You know, we showed up, we got scared, we came home, we were crying. I don't, nobody knows me, I don't have any friends. We said that. We didn't know it was a shameful thing to say. We learned it was a shameful thing to say, and so we quit saying it. And how many times have we just thought, I guess just is this how it is. I guess I'm just going to do this alone. I guess I, mean, I don't even know how this works. And so numerous times I've been in conversations with People my age, 10 years younger, 10 years older, as we try to sort out adult friendships. And it feels like a kindergarten, first grade type of step process that we have to re-engage in. So what would it look like? Well, I guess I'm going to say hello to somebody and say, what's your name? And meet them. Oh, for some of us, that just sounds like, oh, I just, I'd just rather go home. And I guess we're going to have to go coffee and tell our stories. Yep. That's right. And I guess I'm going to do that about eight times, and for every eight times I do it, I'm going to wish I didn't, seven of them. It's hard. It's really hard. You and I, if Jesus says to his disciples, look, I, I, I call you friends, acquaintances aren't going to do. Isolation isn't going to work. You trying to manage your life on your own isn't going to cut it either. I know what some of you are thinking. I don't need any friends. Today, that may be true. But somebody around you does need a friend, and God's called us to do something different. And so, if I'm going to ask you how your friends are, maybe another way to say it would be, whose burden are you carrying? Whose burden are you carrying? And... I don't know what your burden is, but eventually you're going to need some help with it. And my guess is, is you're buckling your knees underneath the weight of your burden anyway. And it's worth asking this question too. Who's outside your feedback loop that's in your friendship group? And that can feel like a lot to pursue and dig in. 
but it's just like the farmer who's looking out of the field and knows that he's going to eventually need a big, large crop and not one seed has been sown. So what do you do? Till some soil, send a text, plant a seed, go to coffee, reach out a bit, be a little vulnerable, decide that this time, three months from now, six months from now, one year from now, the state of your friendships will be a little bit different. It's worth it. So then Jesus says this in John 13, 3. This is what happened next. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So John sets up the very next thing with this statement. That's a lot. It's almost true of you. It's true that you've come from God. It's true that you're going to return to God. The only thing is he didn't put really anything under your power. But you follow a God who is sovereign and good and wants what is good for you, and we trust him. And so we're in the same spot as Jesus, almost. And then it says this. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Now let's say this all together, what Jesus did next. Are you ready? Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now this is, I believe, one of the most poignant things that happens in the Gospel of John. It's always captured my attention and my imagination. And I wonder all the things that we would wonder about this moment that aren't spoken in the Gospel of John. How long did it take? What, what, did anybody say anything? I mean, if you're going to wash a toe, how long does that take? He's got a bunch of toes in the room. They wore sandals. They weren't clean like your feet, although your feet by this time of day probably stink. But their feet at the end of a long day walking in sandals on the dusty roads of Jerusalem were just an absolute mess. What Jesus is doing is some heavy lifting. He's doing some serious cleaning. I don't even like washing my own feet, let alone your feet. I cannot imagine what this was like for Jesus in this moment. And Jesus is going to do this with his towel wrapped around him. I believe it probably took at least an hour to do it all. And he probably did it in utter silence. All you could hear would be the clink of a basin or, or maybe some shuffling around. And when he gets done, he gets up, puts his outer cloak back on and puts the basin away. And he says, look, you don't understand what I've done for you. He says, listen close. I, I know you call me your master and your Lord. And if, if I can come in and do this, wash your feet, you, you should do the same. So he's reversing the values that we have. He's saying what is important and what needs to be a part of your life and how you serve. If, if you're going to follow Will's, Will French's message and think about your calling, this is what it looks like. I don't care what you do. It doesn't matter to me who you are, how big your budget is, how many people report to you, or how big a deal you are. This is what you're called to. And so he says, I've set an example for you. In fact, he gets utterly specific and says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you, is what Jesus said. Those are not unfamiliar words to you, I bet. I bet you've seen this, heard it, maybe saw it in a sermon. Maybe that's new to you, but odds are, if you've been around church, you're at least a little familiar with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And yet in Scripture, there's not a one single story of this ever happening again. Not one. We don't read later in the book of Acts that Peter got down and washed John's feet. Not once. All of the epistles, I mean, there's a lot of words written after the gospels. Nope, not one. 
not one. And I don't know, maybe you've been a part of a foot washing service because some of us like to think that we take the Bible literally. Maybe you're a Bible literalist. And so some churches that take the Bible literally incorporate this into their service on a regular basis. But I've never been to a church like that. And if you have, I bet it was moving and powerful, but it was used, oh, as a illustration, not as something that you should do in normal everyday practice. In fact, even the Bible literalists among us, I'm guessing you haven't been washing people's feet randomly. I got arrested that I saw. It's an awkward thing. Sit down and take some of my shoes off. And so if Jesus is going to say to his disciples and to me and to you, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done. Then the question that we at least ought to ask is, what would that even look like for me to wash somebody's feet? If we're going to follow Jesus, if you and I are going to claim to be followers of Jesus, then we should begin to ask that question. What would it look like for me to wash somebody's feet? And maybe it might literally look at some point in time for you to get down on your hands and knees and wash somebody's feet. It could be. But my guess is, for most of us, on most days, it looks a little bit different than the very act that Jesus engaged in. I've made a list of some things that we can do if we were going to follow the example of Jesus of what it might look like. Maybe one of the first things you would do is notice people. You see them, not rush past them while they're checking your stuff out or while you're at your office or your neighbor that you just see every day just become part of the landscape. Maybe the first thing you would do is begin to notice people. You would see them. You would address them. If you work in a building and some people clean up after you and you don't know their names, you should notice them. You should learn their names. If you're around some folks in your neighborhood that you think ought to know you and they don't and you don't know them, you should notice them. Maybe the other thing you could do is listen. It's one of the things that's been missing from our culture is listening. Listen to someone's story. Listen to why they do what they do or how they feel about certain things. I mean, if you're going to listen, you're going to have to get good at asking questions, but that'll at least begin to Move a conversation down a path. Not listening so that you can tell your story or respond. I mean, really listen. And, and then if you were to take the next step and actually remember, then you'll have somebody who's utterly astounded right in front of you. Hey, how's your brother doing? You said he was not feeling good. Did you find your job yet? How'd the interview go? What's been happening with this or that that you told me about? I can't believe that you listened to me, and I surely can't believe that you remembered it. Maybe it's kindness. Maybe it's learning how somebody thinks and why they think what they think. I bet you could make a list that's much better than mine. I bet your list would be more comprehensive and more detailed. But this is what it would look like if you were to wash somebody's feet. But whatever is on your list or whatever is on my list, you can be sure of this. It's intimate. I bet it was the very first time that Jesus touched the toes of some of the disciples. This is an intimate moment. It involves you connecting with somebody person to person. It's going to be relational, whatever you do, to wash somebody's feet. It's going to be you and them in a conversation. It's also going to be seemingly, this is hard for some of us church folk, seemingly very unspiritual. There's not 
much spiritual about pulling dirt between somebody's toes. It's hard work. Nobody wants to do it. It's hard work to listen to somebody's story and get out of yourself and make them important and remember to send a text or ask the question, notice them. And whatever is on the list, you can be sure of this, it's going to be full of humility, full of humility. So let me ask you this, have you washed any feet lately? Have you been in a conversation with somebody and then when you walked away, you had this sense that they didn't want you to go yet? That they felt seen and heard? That they were loved? Have you washed any feet lately? I guarantee if you do, what will happen is your problems fade into the background, love takes center stage, and the kingdom of God grows just a little bit bigger. And they'll turn around and do it for somebody else. It's exactly why Jesus said, look, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Let me, let me guide you through a bit of a prayer, and we're going to ask God to speak to each of us about this very thing and get very specific with us. I think that is God's favorite thing to do with us is get specific. So let me ask you to pray. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Lord, we are in this moment, and we recognize that, uh, that our lives are here for the purpose of love and serving others. And that you want to do that with us and through us in a lot of different ways. And Lord, our hope is that we would have open ears and open hearts right now. So Lord, I bet there's, Lord, I bet there's somebody in our life that needs, uh, needs a little foot washing. And so would you just uh, bring their name to mind for us? somebody that needs uh, an extra dose of encouragement or love or understanding. And Lord, there are plenty of people right here in this room and listening online that that need their their feet washed themselves. They need to be known and they need the compassion. But Lord, we believe that the love that you give us is the love that we give to others. And so would you fill us with that love now and give us the humility uh, to set aside our ideology, our, our viewpoint, our, our rightness, our certainty, and place somebody ahead of that. Or give us the ability to have the courage to sow seeds in a friendship to reach out and build a a bridge. Lord, for many of us, that would involve uh, overcoming some fears, some complacency, a whole lot of inertia. But we believe that you can move through us to love in this way. So, Lord, what we're asking for right now, each of us, if you're so bold to pray this, open-handed, open-hearted enough, Lord, give us a name, give us a, a direction to sow seed. Bring to mind some feet to wash.
Lord, we believe your word is this firm foundation that we can build our lives on. And so we take seriously the words that your son spoke in this night with his friends. And so we have a basin ready. We have a heart that's willing. Just direct our energy. We are listening for your voice. Not in this moment alone, but all this week. And so when you give us a nudge, help us to be obedient. And help us to build our life on this this foundation of your words, knowing that you'll guide us and lead us and that love will multiply. We'll find a bit more of you in us. So Lord, we listen right now.